Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for the way you have revealed this to us through the work of God the Holy Spirit as he breathed out your thoughts through the personalities and the minds of the writers of scripture. We thank you that you gave it to us in such a way that it was not bound by culture or time, but that your word teaches us how you think. And by studying your word, we worship you in its highest form because we are learning to think as you think, that we may then, on the basis of the reality of revealed truth, live our lives, interact it with our friends, family, nation, on the basis of absolute truth. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for those in the military. We pray for civilian and military leaders, especially in this time of war against terrorism. We pray that you would give them wisdom in the decisions that they make. And Father, with regard to the election coming up, we pray that you would, uh, we know that your will will be accomplished as you are working out your plans and purposes in history. Nevertheless, we pray that we might have leaders elected who would be consistent with establishment truth and leaders that would continue to provide an environment where we can protect Israel, we can defend and support Israel, and we can continue to send out missionaries. Father, we pray that you would continue to, to uh, give, this, give freedom to this nation that your word may be faithfully proclaimed. Now, Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We're studying the Bible. How do we know we can trust the Bible? We've gone through a number of different avenues talking about the uniqueness of the Bible, that it is a book that was written over a period of at least 1,400 years by over 40 different authors who came from many different walks of life, and yet they all agreed on the same themes. They discuss many of the most controversial, some of the most 
difficult subjects in human history, and yet there is no disagreement amongst them. We looked at the fact that uh, the Bible uh, cannot be proven by archaeology or science. Nevertheless, archaeology has demonstrated that the Bible is consistent with the times in which it claims to have been written and the events it describes. We've seen that archaeology also demonstrates the veracity of many ancient accounts and that at no time has anything discovered in archaeology or history ever contradicted what is written in the Bible. We have also seen that the Bible demonstrates the kind of quality that one would expect from a book that claims to be uniquely inspired by God. Over against all other so-called religious books or revelations such as the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Bhagavad Gita or any of the other uh, so-called uh, religious texts, the Bible alone has genuine predictive prophecy. And we studied a number of those prophecies which were given in detail and came to fulfillment in detail in such a way that they could not have been manufactured, it could not have been forced And obviously the information given to the prophet was specific and detailed and could only have come from the God who controls history. Last week we looked at how we got the the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, of course, was written over a period of approximately uh, 1,400 years, although I believe that Moses used source material prior to that, and Job may have even been written prior to Moses. Uh, we know that at least uh, there was a, about, a, well, a thousand-year period from approximately 1400 to 400 B.C. The Old Testament canon closed with the writing of the last uh, book in the English order, that is uh, Malachi. And then there was 400 years of, of silence. During that time, the Jews faithfully preserved the Old Testament. They demonstrated their high regard for the Old Testament. This was not something that was uh, treated lightly, but they uh, had uh, te- uh, techniques, they had procedures, methodologies for copying the text that preserved it. And last time we talked a little about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is where the original find took place, as you see in the picture on the overhead. This is in uh, an area just north of the Dead Sea called Qumran. And a Bedouin shepherd discovered some clay jars in the cave, and these jars contained parchments. And these parchments were, and scrolls, contained writings not only from the Old Testament, but also from the intertestamental period, that is, that 400-year gap. And they also contained various writings for this community. There was, in this area, a somewhat monastic community called the Essenes. They're not mentioned in the New Testament, but they were the third major group of religious, uh, or the third major religious group in the New Testament period. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And the Essenes isolated themselves. They were very sectarian. They lived out in the wilderness and they had their own, uh, their own community where they, they kept these documents. And one of the things that I pointed out last time is that by comparing the scrolls dating anywhere from about 100 to 200 uh, BC, that is the Old Testament scrolls, comparing those with the, uh, Hebrew manuscripts that we had that were actually a thousand years later. The oldest we had up to that point was only a thousand or nine hundred A.D. 
And by comparing them, there were very, very few differences. In fact, most of the differences I pointed out were grammatical, updates in spelling, updates in orthography, things of that nature, modernization of certain words and place names, that there were only, and for example, in the Isaiah scroll, there were only about 12 significant differences. And I mentioned Miller Burroughs, who was a professor at Yale, who was one of the key scholars on the initial find and one of the translators of the Revised Standard Version. And he accepted as significant just a small number, I think it was five or six changes, something like that, when they translated the RSV. Later in life, after he had more time to study and reflect, he rejected even those. And he thought that the Masoretic text, as it was preserved, uh, in the 10th century documents was a superior text to what was found at the Dead Sea. I mean, and, and there, there are very little differences, but that showed us the, the care, the detail, and the transmission of the Old Testament text. The Old Testament canon was clearly closed uh, by the time of Christ. We saw that, that by the time of Christ, he recognized the same division, the same organization of the Scripture that we have in the Hebrew Bible. It was not determined by a council of rabbis. There was a council of rabbis at Yomnia, which was down in, in Palestine, that occurred in, set, in about 90 A.D. This is 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And the purpose was just to solidify and codify uh, Judaism in this new era, new era of the diaspora or the post-70 A.D. collapse. And at the Council of Yomnia, they were not finalizing the Old Testament canon, they were simply ratifying what had been practiced for over 400 years. And so this is the important thing to understand. Human viewpoint, paganism comes along because in all the other world religions, you have an authoritative figure, you have an authoritative council, you have some church groups or or some religious body that says this is the authorized text. But not in the, not, that's not how it works in the, in Christianity or in the Old Testament. What you have is a, God has revealed His Word. It is self-authenticating. And the community, whether it's the Old Testament community of Israel or the New Testament community of the church, clearly recognizes due to certain criteria what is acceptable and what, what isn't acceptable. And in both cases, there may be uh, some argument, for example, in the Old Testament, there was some debate over whether or not Esther ought to be included in the Old Testament canon, and there was some debate over uh, Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes uh, and may, maybe a couple of other Old Testament books. But there was no serious consideration given to adding anything else. So it is definite that it is these 39 books which we have in our English Bible, 22 or 24 in the Hebrew Bible, depending on how they're divided, that is clearly the canon, the rule, the standard of the Old Testament. Now, what about the New Testament? How did we get the New Testament? What, how do we recognize which books are authoritative? Well, first of all, we have to realize that a precedent had already been set recognizing the canon of the Old Testament. It is clear from the writings of Paul, for example, when he mentions to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, that you read the Scriptures, and by that, he, the Holy Writings. 
And he's referring to the Old Testament text that there is a set body of literature called the Holy Writings. It's clear from others that uh, writings in the New Testament and statements made by Jesus that there was a set canon. So it was already in the mindset of the New Testament church in the early church that there would also be a set authoritative body of writings for the church. And this has come down to us as the New Testament. Now, let's just talk a little bit about how the New Testament's organized. There are three basic sections to the Old Testament. We can divide them into the historical, the epistles, and Revelation. The historical, the epistles, and the book of Revelation, which is distinct in all of the Old, I mean, all of the New Testament. The historical section has two parts, the Gospels, and Acts. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. Now, the Gospels give us the an account of the birth and ministry. Notice I didn't say life, because it doesn't really tell us about the life of Christ. There, from his birth to his inauguration and his ministry, the only incident that we're told about is when he goes to Jerusalem when he is a young boy and he stays behind. His parents leave to go home and he stays behind and he gets into a discussion, theological discussion with the rabbis and impresses them because he knows more about the Old Testament than they do. That's the only incident we know about in his childhood. Uh, they are they are gospels. They are written. Each one has a different theme, and the gospels are written in order to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. That He is the Old Testament Messiah. That He is the Savior of the world. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. But they all focus on His uh, teaching ministry, different aspects of it, and ultimately on His work on the cross, where He died. For the sins of the world. So the Gospels focus on the ministry, the, the birth, the ministry, and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts takes, starts where the Gospels end. The Gospels end with Jesus' uh, ascension. Acts chapter 1 begins with Jesus' ascension and carries through to the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and then the expansion of the church and Christianity out from Jerusalem, from uh, Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the earth. The main thrust of the book of Acts is on the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but that doesn't start until his salvation in Acts chapter 9. So in the first eight chapters, you see an emphasis on what's happening in the early church in Jerusalem and Judea, and the key figure there is Peter. And then you see this shift from Peter to Paul, and Paul dominates as the gospel goes to the Gentiles in the latter part of Acts. But Acts doesn't carry us all the way through Paul's ministry. It stops at his first imprisonment, and he was imprisoned twice, in Rome, he was released the first time, and the Bible does not tell us what he did next. Uh, tradition tells us that he may have gone to Spain, he may have gone to up to Britain, he may have gone into the area uh, north, uh, uh, in the area of uh, uh, Bulgaria, that area, uh, north of Greece. We don't know. 
and then he's arrested again, taken to Rome, and at that point he is martyred, he is beheaded. But that is not contained in the book of Acts. Acts ends with his first imprisonment. Then we have the second major division, which is that of the epistles. And the epistles are letters, and it's clear that they fit the form of the standard letter that was written at that time. This isn't some sort of special Holy Spirit kind of literature. And the epistles are generally divided into two categories. There are the Pauline epistles, and there are 13 Pauline epistles, and then what are what's usually classified as the general epistles. The general epistles include three epistles by John called the Johannine epistles. First uh, and Second Peter are the Petrine epistles. Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews. That was always the kind of the joke at at seminary was that don't let the pressure of finals get to you, or you'll be like the student. There was always that that urban legend or seminary legend about some student back in the 30s or 40s who called up Dr. Walvert at 4 o'clock in the morning and said, I've discovered who wrote the book of Hebrews. And they had to sort of cart him off. But Hebrews, James, and Jude, who were the half-brothers of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last book, which is Revelation. So this is the organization of the New Testament. These books were written over a period of approximately 50 years. In my view, the earliest New Testament book was the book of James. I think James may have been written as early as 45 or 46 A.D. I believe James was the first epistle that was written. And the last book written is Revelation, which is written approximately 95 A.D. So you go from 45 to 95, you have a 50-year uh, period of time there. Nothing, interestingly enough, nothing was written by Jesus. Nothing was written during his lifetime. The Gospels were all written prior to 70 A.D. The Gospels were all written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And that's important to understand. In fact, I was, as I was reviewing uh, notes and various uh, dictionary articles about uh, the origin of the New Testament this last week, there's tremendous debate in scholarly circles about the order in which the Gospels were written. And ever since the middle of the 19th century, with the rise of 19th century liberalism and the methodology that's used, historic called historical criticism, uh, there has been the um, emphasis that Mark was written first, because you have a lot of similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a lot of overlapping material. And you will frequently uh, pick up a book written by many good scholars, and they just assume that this is true. However, our good friend, Dr. John Niemela, who is professor of New Testament at uh, Chaper Seminary, wrote his doctoral dissertation, which I have at home, and it weighs about 50 pounds, um, and is filled with statistics that I can't begin to comprehend, but I can comprehend many of the other arguments. Uh, Dr. Niemola demonstrated conclusively in his dissertation that Mark could not have been written first and that Matthew had to have been written first, which is a view I have always held uh, based on what seems to be a rather simple, some might say naive principle that you see in the New Testament, that is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
Matthew is the gospel written to the Jews. And I have always held to Matthean priority that Matthew was written first and then uh, probably then Luke and then Mark. Mark was not the first uh, gospel that was written, although I'm not sure of just the exact relationship of Mark and Luke. They could It could have been the other way around. Uh, we're not sure. The original gospels did not have a writer's name attached to them. And it wasn't until the early 2nd century, as they were collected together in one book, or what they called a codex, which is similar to the way we do a book, that they were uh, identified by author of the Gospels. And you had, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. So if you pick things up and you read that Mark was written first, there is a whole load of presuppositions that lies behind that, many of which we must challenge, and we just can't accept those kinds of conclusions. It's based on a methodology that is uh, th- that does not take the Scriptures at their face value. The sad thing is that evangelical scholarship always seems to follow the pattern of carnal Israel in the Old Testament. We want to have a king like every other king, like every other nation. And so we want to do things like everybody else. And so once you establish a good seminary, uh, two or three generations down the road, they get into academic arrogance and they want to be like every other academic institution and have that level of uh, acceptability and accountability and respectability. Then the next thing you know, they're using the same methodologies of the liberal schools. And that's exactly what has happened in every one of the, of the major, uh, seminaries in, uh, evangelical seminaries in America in the last 15 years. Uh, every one of them has, has adopted, uh, this document, uh, excuse me, this historical critical method when it comes to the Gospels. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go into this because it's extremely technical and it's way beyond uh, the scope of this particular study, but it's something that, um, in fact, you really don't spend a whole lot of time on it when you're in seminary. just something that's usually assumed. You have about two lectures on it in New Testament intro, and that's about it. But a few years ago, there was a book that came out that was written by David Farnell, who had just received his Ph.D. in the New Testament Department of Dallas Seminary, and uh, Robert L. Thomas, who is a New Testament professor at uh, the Master's Seminary in Southern California. And it was called The Jesus Crisis, and boy, did it. It just was one of those books that came out and and uh, took a baseball bat to a whole lot of seminaries and, and scholars. Uh, in fact, I was told by the president of the of the uh, publishing house that published that book that the head of the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary called him up and tried to uh, intimidate him into not publishing the book because it was going to make Dallas look bad as well as all the other seminaries. I mean, I'm not singling out Dallas for punishment here. But Farnell, of course, had just gotten his Ph.D. at Dallas. He really understood what was being taught by several of the professors uh, at Dallas Seminary. And they had all. And if you adopt liberal methodology, guess what, folks? Sooner or later, you're going to start moving into liberal conclusions. So you have to be careful. Methodology is not neutral. 
That is one of the most difficult things for people to understand. Uh, A right thing has to be done in the right way. That's the simplest way to put it. A wrong thing done, uh, a a, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And methodology isn't neutral. And so this always happens. So it's important that we have good scholars like uh, Dr. Nimala who, uh, frankly, when most of us get together and listen to John, when he starts getting into this, he, he, he just goes way into the stratosphere, and most of us can't even can't follow all of that. But he did a masterful job in his in his dissertation. So uh, Matthew was probably written first, then Luke, then Mark, and then John. So here's a timeline to see how the New Testament fits together. Jesus is born approximately 4 to 5 B.C. Now, people say, what do you mean 5 years B.C.? B.C. stands for before Christ. Well, when the, in, in about the uh, 7th or 8th centuries, whenever they redid the calendar, they missed when they identified the birth of Christ. So they weren't accurate. So the year they picked for the birth of Christ was actually off about 4 or 5 years. So Jesus Christ was born about 4 to 5 B.C., and his crucifixion is in 33 A.D. And you say, well, that would make him 37 years old. I thought Luke said that Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. No, read the text. Luke said he was about 30. He doesn't make it definite. He does not say that. What we know from uh, comparing uh, many different factors in the ancient world is that we can be fairly, fairly solid in these dates. Herod dies in 4 B.C., so he has to be born before Herod died. Uh, so it's about 4 or 5 B.C. The first epistle is James, written about 47, 15 years or so after, uh, 12 to 15 years after the death of Christ. Paul begins to write with his, at the end of his first missionary journey, and he writes... Um, his first epistle is Galatians, and that's written about uh, about the same time, about 47 or 48. Uh, and then uh, he writes up until his death, which is about 63. It's during that time Matthew is written, although I have seen some people claim that Matthew was written as late as 70 A.D. Matthew contains the sermon on the, I mean, the Olivet Discourse, excuse me, Olivet Discourse, which is clearly written and included in Matthew in order to demonstrate that, uh, and to warn the Jews of the coming judgment on uh, Jerusalem, where Jesus said that uh, there would be a judgment coming and no stone would be left unturned on the Temple Mount. We dealt with that prophecy couple of weeks ago. So Matthew had to have been written prior to 70 A.D., probably in the late 50s. Luke and Acts were written around 61. We know that because Luke tells us in the uh, preface to his gospel that he made it a point to go out and research, talk to everybody who knew Jesus. He talked to his mother. He talked to family members. He talked to all of the eyewitnesses. He did good historical research. And the only time Luke, we know that Luke would have had the uh, opportunity to do this is during that year to year and a half period when Paul was in prison in Caesarea after his third missionary journey when he traveled to Jerusalem and then he was arrested and then he was taken to Caesarea. It was during that time that Luke would have had the opportunity to move around uh, Judea and the Galilee 
in order to get that information. So Luke Acts are written by 61. Uh, Mark's written sometime in that same period, maybe even a little bit later. Uh, most of the other epistles, Hebrews is written in the early 60s. It has to have been written prior to the fall of Jerusalem. The uh, James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, James, I said, was written early. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written about 90 to 95. The Gospel of John was probably the last Gospel written also between 90 and 95, and then the book of Revelation. So that gives you the scope of when the New Testament was written. Now what happens because of certain, because of the influence of liberal presupposition, remember their major presupposition is that, that the Bible can't be what it claims to be. I mean that's how they approach the evidence. It can't be what it claims to be. They don't give it any objectivity. They start with the assumption that God doesn't exist and if he did he couldn't communicate to man anyway. So this is not what he claims to be, that is, revelation from the source of God. It is simply human uh, records about God, about their spiritual experiences. And it may contain some wise sayings, but it's certainly not absolute uh, infallible truth. And so liberal theology, starting in the early 1800s, attacked the dates of Scripture. And of course, see, you can destroy predictive prophecy. If, you, if Daniel wasn't written in the um, in the sixth century B.C., but was written in the second century B.C., then there's no prediction there. It's all history, which is how uh, liberals attack. That's how you get away with, uh, or that's how you uh, remove this issue of predictive prophecy. The same thing happens in the New Testament. You have these things were written down later. And they're very, they're all, always associated with various claims, such as Jesus, the real historical Jesus, never claimed to be God. We have to go, and in liberal theology, what you do is you have to go into the Gospels, and you have to separate out that which was true about the historical Jesus, and that which was later embellished by the church in order to build this case for the deity of Christ, which wasn't part of the original. And this is, uh, has reached its uh, culmination in, uh, in a popular form in the book, The Da Vinci Code. And we studied that uh, several months ago. Don't forget about that because that will be coming out as a movie next year. And so we're, you're going to have to go back and review all that information again so that you can handle uh, the discussions that uh, they come up at that time. But you see, if the, if the Gospels and the New Testament were written when they claim to be written, which is the view of traditional uh, Orthodox uh, Christianity, then the canon is closed and completed by 95 A.D. Now, what you have, uh, what we have interesting is, is well, then how did we get the text? How is it preserved? How is it transmitted from that point? And what we discover is that early New Testament books were originally written on scrolls, scrolls of parchment or leather. Now, that's subject to deterioration. So we don't have the original writings of the New Testament any more than we have the original writings of the Old Testament. But we do have some documents that go back to within a few decades of the original. Uh, by the early 2nd century, the period 115 to uh, 150, 
they began to put and collect the writings of the New Testament together and bind and they would bound them or bind them in what was called a codex, very similar to uh, our modern books. They would fold sheets of papyrus or vellum together in the middle, and then they would sew them together. And so this is what a codex is, C-O-D-E-X. Now, we don't have the original writings, but we do have some uh, very old copies or fragments. The oldest that we have that uh, everyone would agree on is one that is simply identified as uh, P-52. And P-52 contains a very small fragment of the Gospel of John. John 18, 31 to 34, and verses 37 to 38. Now, this is interesting. If you were to look it up, this is that section where Pilate is questioning Jesus, and Pilate says, well, what is truth? So these are these are those verses. God has a certain sense of humor and preserving that is one of the oldest. However, there is another papyrus designated as P46 that many scholars are beginning to think may be older. This is part of a group of papyri called the Chester Beatty Papyrus Collection 2, which contains all of Paul's epistles except for the pastorals, and recent years there's been a move in scholarship to put the date of P46 into the late 80s or maybe into the 90s, which again puts this within uh, 20 years of John's writing. Oh, I skipped over this. P52 is dated approximately 110 to 125. Now, if John wrote the gospel in 90, then this is within... 20 to 40 years of the original gospel. Uh, P46, if that's written in the 80s and 90s, Paul is martyred about 62 or 63. This is within 20 to 30 years of the original. So New Testament, the, the, the fragments we have, the papyri we have, go back to within a generation of the original. And this is profound. There's no, we'll see in a chart I'll put up here in a minute. There's no other uh, ancient literature that has as much documentation as the New Testament and as close to the original as, as we have. Now, we have a number of different uh, collections of papyri that have been discovered. For, and I'm going to put these up on the board here so you can see how to spell them. The Oxyrhynchus papyri. Now, for those on tape, that's spelled O-X-Y. O-X-Y-R-H-Y-N-C-H-U-S. O-X-Y-R-H-Y-N-C-H-U-S. This was discovered uh, in rubbish heaps in the village of Oxyrhynchus, Egypt in 1898. And in the rubbish heaps of this ancient village, they found volumes of papyrus fragments containing all kinds of written material, literature, business and legal documents, letters, as well as over 35 manuscripts that contained portions of the New Testament. So this was a very important find. Then there's another collection uh, called the, well, actually, I got this slide out of order, 
called the Chester Beatty Papyri, named after the owner, who is Chester Beatty, and who purchased uh, these manuscripts from a dealer in Egypt back in the 1930s. There are three manuscripts in this collection. They're very early, and they contain a large portion of the New Testament. P45 is from the 3rd century and contains portions of all the Gospels and Acts. So that's, remember, it is, that's from the 3rd century. It's got the four Gospels and Acts. What's the claim in the Da Vinci Code and modern scholarship? That it was Constantine or the Council of Nicaea that determined which Gospels we were going to accept. And here you have attestation from this collection and down in Egypt, which was a Gnostic, there was a lot of Gnosticism in Egypt, uh, where they clearly had the four Gospels and Acts and no other Gospels. Also, you have uh, P46 from the late first century, Paul's Epistles in Hebrews, which I just mentioned. P47 is from the third century, and that contains Revelation 9 through 17. So another collection called the Bodmer Papyri, which named from its owner, uh, Martin Bodmer, B-O-D-M-E-R. These manuscripts were purchased from a dealer in Egypt during the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s. And the three most important papyri in this collection are P46, which is dated to about 175 A.D. and contains almost all of John, uh, that is the Gospel of John. P72, which is dated into the 3rd century, it's around 250, which has all of 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude, and P75, which is dated about 200, and contains uh, the vast part of the center, center of Luke. So by the late 20th century, you have literally thousands of papyri that date back to within two or 300 years of the original uh, Greek New Testament, that give us attestation as to what what the original said. And this is where you start getting into the study of textual criticism. Because we don't have the original, and there are some variations between different documents, and there may be some differences here or there. Usually it's grammar. Sometimes a word's left out. Sometimes a word is added. Uh, Sometimes you have uh, a writer or a scribe. Every time you have the word Jesus, he adds the word Christ. But you can note these scribal tendencies that show up by comparing documents. And by comparing documents, you can get back to the original. One of the most uh, significant discoveries that was made in the, in, in the 19th century was the discovery of, a, uh, of Codex Sinaiticus uh, from Mount Sinai. So it was discovered by Count uh, Constantine von Tischendorf, and this is what the Codex Sinaiticus looks like. If you can see that, you'll notice that, that all of the letters are in uppercase. Now, you don't have to really read the letters to know that. These are all in uppercase, and that is called an uncial text. And if you will notice, I've made the point many times when I have uh, taught on different passages, if you will notice, there's no breaks between the words. They just All the letters just run together. There's no punctuation. There's no commas. There's no periods. They just all run together. There's no real paragraphing of any type. So this is Codex Sinaiticus, and Count uh, uh, von Tischendorf was spending the night 
at St. Catherine's Monastery. And here's a picture of St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount, the traditional Mount Sinai down in the Sinai Peninsula. I don't think it's the true Mount Sinai. It could be, but I doubt it. Uh, many uh, more biblical scholars think it's somewhere else, another series of mountains in the in the Sinai Peninsula. But nevertheless, this was where St. Catherine's Monastery was. And as they were uh, burning papers and uh, parchments, using them to light the fires in the monastery, as the monk came into his room at night to light his fires, he lit the lit it, lit the uh, parchment, and as it flamed up, uh, uh, Tischendorf saw Greek letters there, and he immediately uh, stamped it out. And, lo- and there's this whole bin of of, of uh, parchments and papyri that he went through. And he discovered almost an entire codex of the New Testament. That uh, and the monks there had no idea what they had, and this dated back to the uh, uh, fourth century A.D. and was one of the most significant finds in the ancient world. I mean, in the modern times, Codex Vaticanus was another one that was very important. Uh, it was uh, discovered by another textual critic in the mid 19th century by the name of Samuel Tregellis. And he was staying at the Vatican, or this, and discovered this. And Vatican, uh, they, the the librarians at the Vatican wouldn't let him take it out, wouldn't let him make copies of it. But he had a photographic memory, and he would go in every day, and he would memorize it, and go back to his room and write it down at night. And then after he left, he published it, and it was so close to the uh, original that it forced the uh, Vatican to release it and to publish it. And then you have the Codex Alexandrinus, which is a 5th century manuscript. Again, it's in the same style as the other two. Uh, these, these three were some of the oldest complete codexes that had been discovered, and it caused a revolution in textual criticism at the time, and it developed into a theory uh, which was promoted by two, two British scholars, uh, B.F. Westcott, and F.J.A. Hort. It's called the Westcott-Hort Theory, and it was the basically, really oversimplifying this for you, oldest is best. And there have been tremendous challenges to that view, and since the 50s there's been a, uh, a, a lot of work done on a view on textual criticism, which I prefer called the majority text. And the majority text is not the same as the textus receptus. The textus receptus, refers to those uh, seven or eight manuscripts that Erasmus used for his Greek New Testament that was published in the early 16th century. By the way, of course, you know what today is, don't you? It's not Halloween. I don't want to hear that answer. It is Reformation Day. It was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses onto the door of the Church of the Wittenberg, which started the Reformation, and I'll talk about that a little bit next hour. But Erasmus was a, he believed that the that the Catholic Church needed to be reformed, but he didn't think there should be a break, and he was one of Luther's uh, great opponents. But he was very instrumental in bringing about the Reformation because he published a Greek text. And see, by the 15th century, uh, scholars were, had lost Hebrew, they'd lost Greek, they're using the Vulgate, which has errors in it, and once they started getting back to the original Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament, 
what happens? You have rediscovery of truth and reformation. So his eight manuscripts that he used for the for his uh, New Testament came to be known as the Textus Receptus, or the TR, and that became the basis for the King James translation. Now, the Textus Receptus is part of a broader family of manuscripts known as the Byzantine text or the majority text. But there are a lot of differences. There's, in fact, there's, some people want to, want to, uh, uh, say they're the same thing, but they're not. There's over 1800 differences between the, uh, Textus Receptus and the majority text. And that's important because in the study of Revelation, you have a tremendous number of places where the majority text reading agrees with the older manuscripts of uh, Sinaiticus or Vaticanus or Alexandrinus, and it doesn't agree with the TR. And this is why I've gone over and over again in places, especially in chapter 1, pointing out the variances in, in those two chapters because we have to figure out what the original said and you have to look at those uh, textual problems in order to uh, deal with that. And I believe that if at any point, I think it's sort of a drop-dead ar- argument, that if at any point the uh, the critical text, which is based on Westcott and Hort, agrees with the majority text then uh, against the TR, then pretty much the TR is, has a problem. But it's not really a problem. As Dr. Ryrie used to say when I was in seminary, it's not a problem that we have 95% of the Bible. It's that we have 105%, and we have to figure out which 5% isn't in the, wasn't supposed to be there to begin with and wasn't part of the original. So it's uh, there, there are these textual problems. Codex Alexandrinus, you can see from the overhead that that, again, is an uncial text. It's all capital letters, no punctuation. This is a... I just thought I would throw this in for you in terms of the history of the text. This is from a uh, medieval uh, illuminated text, and it's called the 42-line Bible, and this is in, uh, in Latin. You also have, uh, as far as early manuscripts go, the Codex Ephraemi Rescriptus, which was a 5th century document, which contained a large portion of the New Testament, and it was discovered and uh, on, a, on a partially erased uh, codex, which was overwritten with the sermons of a St. Ephraim. So Tischendorf discovered this and realized that there was something underneath, and so through the use of various uh, uh, techniques, he was able to recover what had been originally written on that, on that codex. Then another 5th uh, century document, is the Codex Biza, named from Theodore Biza, who was Calvin's uh, heir, so to speak. Uh, Theodore Biza discovered it, and it contains the Gospels and Acts. Then you have Codex uh, Washingtonianus, which are the, called the Freer Gospels because it's owned by its uh, owner, uh, Charles Freer. And this is housed in the Smithsonian in Washington. It's a 5th century manuscript. So we have many manuscripts that go back quite to, to an era quite close to the to the New Testament to the original writings. Now let me go back here to a few slides.
to compare the Bible, the number of manuscripts we have, with other ancient literature. The way to read this is from left to right. We have the author, then the book that he is known for, the date he wrote it, the earliest surviving manuscript, the gap, time gap between the date it was written and its earliest surviving manuscript, and the number of copies that we have. For example, Homer wrote the Iliad, also wrote the Odyssey, but the Iliad was written about 800 B.C. The earliest or the oldest copy that we have dates to 400 B.C., so there's a gap of 400 years between the, between the original and the oldest copy, and we have 645 copies of the, of the Iliad from ancient times. The... Um, Herodotus wrote a history of the Greeks, and it was written between 480 B.C. and 425 B.C. The earliest surviving document or copy that we have of of Herodotus is from 900 A.D., and that's a gap of 1,350 years from the original to the copy that we have, and we have eight copies. Thucydides wrote a history of the Peloponnesian Wars, and that was written between 460 B.C. and 400 B.C. The oldest surviving copy we have is from 900 A.D., or, and, we, and that's a gap, again, of 1,300 years between the time it was written and the uh, oldest surviving copy or extant copy. And we have eight copies. Plato wrote about 400 B.C. The earliest surviving copies are 900 A.D., 13, again, a 1,300-year gap. We have seven copies. Demosthenes wrote 300 B.C. The earliest surviving copies we have are A.D. 1100. That's a gap of 1,400 years. We have 200 copies of Demosthenes. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, written between 144 B.C. The oldest surviving copy we have was from A.D. 900, a gap of 1,000 years, and we have 10 copies. Livy, History of Rome, written... um, about 59 B.C. Uh, to 17 A.D. And the oldest surviving copy we have dates to a part of it, dates, we have a portion of it, a small fragment from the 4th century, from A.D., from the uh, 4th century A.D. But we have a complete copy that goes to the 10th century. So there's a, about a thousand year gap. We have one partial and 19 complete copies. Tacitus Annals, a Roman historian, wrote about A.D. 100. The oldest surviving copy we have is A.D. 1100, a thousand years gap between the time it was written and the oldest copy, and we have 20 copies. Compare that to the New Testament. Look at the difference. The New Testament was written between roughly 45 or 50 A.D. and 95 A.D., the earliest copies that we have may, P, what was it, P46 may go into the first century, but if we just stick with um, what we've got for sure, uh, AD 114 uh, to 200 from uh, P52. So that is within 30 years to 150 years. There's no other document from the ancient world that goes back as close to the original autograph as the New Testament. And we don't have just 8 or 10 or 15 or 50 copies. We have over 5,366 copies. This is a tremendous attestation. And this doesn't count the fact that we have writings from people like Clement of Rome 
and from uh, Barnabas and the Didache and Ignatius and Justin Martyr and numerous other church fathers who wrote between 75 A.D. and, a, and let's say 200 A.D., wrote between that 125-year period who quote from the New Testament in many different ways. For example, we have Papias, who lived from 60, from A.D. 60 to A.D. 130. So he was a student, actually, a disciple of the Apostle John in Ephesus. And he was the first who mentioned each of the four Gospels. And he said, there are four Gospels, that's it. Uh, and by 150, A.D. 150, Justin Martyr identified and limited the present Gospel to the present canon to only four Gospels, Matthew through John. So it's clear that by the early first century, they knew there were only four Gospels. By A.D. 170, Tatian composed a work called the Diatessaron, and it was a harmony of the four Gospels. There, they did not ever include any other Gospels. Irenaeus, whose dates were from 130 to 202, clearly identifies the four Gospels we have as authoritative. And he said, let me skip down through... Irenaeus said it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. And he identified four. Irenaeus also quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Titus, Hebrews, and 1 Peter as authoritative. About that same time, you have Clement of Alexandria in North Africa, same area where you find Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Alexandrinus. In his writings, he has... 2,400 quotes from all but three books of the New Testament. Tertullian, whose dates are from 160 to 220, uh, is a church father in Carthage, and he quotes the New Testament more than 7,000 times, and 3,800 of those are from the four Gospels that we have. Hippolytus, whose dates are from 170 to 235, has over 1,300 quotes from the New Testament. Origen, whose dates are from 185 to 254, is more than 18,000 quotes from the New Testament. In fact, uh, Origen is attributed by Eusebius as saying that, quote, I accept the traditional view of the four Gospels, which alone are undeniably authentic in the church of God on earth. And he refuted uh, these false Gospels that were being promoted by his time, uh, by the Gnostics, for example, he said, I know a certain gospel, which is called the gospel according to Thomas, and a gospel according to uh, Matthias. And many others have we read, lest we should in any way be considered ignorant. Nevertheless, among all these, we have approved solely what the church has recognized, which is that only the four gospels should be accepted. Remember, this is early third century. This is a hundred years before, before Nicaea. So by looking at the quotes in the church fathers, by comparing the ancient documents we have, we can have certainty as to what the New Testament said. We don't have to guess. Now, of course, as I pointed out, there are some times when there are minor discrepancies, a word included or left out here, or word order different, something like that. But nothing that affects any, any doctrine, nothing that affects anything significant in the Scriptures are, are affected by these changes. Now that gives us a pretty good understanding of how we got, have the New Testament and its preservation and transmission. And next time I want to look at how the New Testament was transmitted down to us 
And uh, that will include not only some more information on how the canon was formed initially, but how we got our English Bibles and a little bit about some of the different translations that we have today, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the way you have preserved your word, the truth that is in it. We thank you for the fact that it is evident to us that this is uh, your word. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is... Uh, that which we must live by. Father, we thank you for your revelation of our basic sinful condition and need for salvation through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins simply by believing that he paid that penalty for you, you have eternal life. It is a free gift. It's not based on works. It's not based on church attendance, church involvement, uh, making some sort of bargain or deal with God. It's based on your understanding of the simple gospel that Christ died for you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us and encourage us with the things that we've studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.